Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, as you're turning there, I, I want to ask you a question. You know, or I'm not sure I have a good answer for this, but what would you say is the difference between waiting and expecting? Waiting and expecting. I know we're just splitting hairs here, um, but I was thinking about this this week primarily because of the text. But the difference between waiting and expecting, I think, just throw it on the table, maybe this is an option. That waiting is just what you do in life. This is part of life. You've got to wait on things. You're always waiting on someone or something. But expecting is when waiting begins to take control. It's when it begins to I, uh, become your identity. You are expectant of something. You are just waiting. Somebody asks you, how are you doing or how's life? Your answer has something to do with something that you are waiting on, Right? And there's a, uh, a lot of people who struggle with this. You might struggle with this. I know I personally struggle with this. You can blame it all on my roots, but it's just something that is hard to do. For instance, seasons changing. Seasons changing would be one of those things, right? Uh, it starts to get warmer, and you start to think about things you can do in the yard. You can go for a hike. You can go kayaking, some landscaping, some things like that. Or if it gets cooler, you start to think about different sports. I know a lot of people, as soon as it starts to warm up, you start thinking about baseball games, right? And as soon as it starts to cool down, you start thinking about football and the roar of the Sunday crowd. There are so many things that we wait for. Or how about this? I read, I read that more and more people now are uh, ordering their vehicles online. Like, you know, I've always just, you know, go to the lot, you find one you like that makes a good deal, and then you drive it off. More and more people now are ordering their vehicles online to the point where it may just do away with car lots in the way that we know them and the way that we are used to them. I don't know that I could wait that long. I, it just would dominate everything about my life at that point. Or how about this one? This one is a, clearly, it's easy to see, is expectant parents, right? That one's going to be life-altering, right? Whether it's biological or adoption, there's so much to learn, so much to do. You've got to get the crib together. You've got to prepare for the diapers and all that. There's learning, so many things. God gives you nine months to get ready. Sometimes adoptions will give you at least that long to uh, get your, your business in order. But no doubt about it, there is a difference between expectant parents and uh, parents that are not expecting. You haven't even met the child and you will do anything to make them feel your love. In each of these situations and a million others, it's not just that you are waiting, it's that what you are waiting for begins to define who you are. It begins to take over. Your life begins to twist and orient towards that thing that you are waiting on. This is exactly the topic of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is addressing a situation in which they were waiting for. They were expectant of it. And they, didn't, they really didn't know how to, how to live out their lives in reality of what was to come. So Paul addresses that. And in fact, he starts off the text. Verse 1, he says something along the lines of, regarding the seasons and the times. You don't need me to write anything about that, brothers and sisters, to you, because you know that it's going to happen suddenly. 
Paul essentially says, look, there, you, I know you're waiting. You're expecting, you're looking for signs. You're looking for all of the clues on when it's all going to take place. But look, it's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen suddenly. So his encouragement for them, my encouragement for you and for you is that we would live differently knowing that the thing that we are waiting on is going to happen suddenly. So here's my goal. My goal this morning is that I would, for some of you, introduce this day, this event that we are going to orient our lives toward and at the same time encourage you to live your life differently in light of that day. All right, let's pray together and then we'll look at the text. God, thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for all the ways that you have blessed us. God, we celebrate with these who have taken steps towards making a public declaration that they have trusted you as their Lord and Savior. They have died to themselves and been raised to walk in new life. God, we thank you for those who will do that in the next service, those who are doing that even now in Greenbrier. We thank you for those who are gathering with us in person and online. God, I pray that we would open our minds and our hearts toward your word, that we would align our lives in order to live it in a way that is expectant for the day in which you will return. And God, that we would be self-controlled as we wait. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me read this to you. Uh, I'm going to be reading right here. You follow along in the Bible that you have there. About the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. I read uh, some commentary said that thief is maybe a, it's a misleading word for our Western English brains. Thief, we kind of think of a pickpocket or somebody like that. They'll, they'll, they'll do you wrong. Um, a better illustration of what's trying to get across here is like a home invader. Like, like you're asleep in the middle of the night and somebody breaks into your home. That sudden, scary sort of feeling there. So the, the day of the Lord will come just like a home invader in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark. For the, day is, uh, for the day to surprise you like a home invader. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest. But let us stay awake and let us be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of hope and of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, because of that, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing what Paul does in this text is he gives us two waypoints, two anchors in order to align our lives in a certain way. All right. Last week when we were setting up for Easter at the Expo, uh, there was many of the chairs were just in straight like uh, groupings, just a grid, right? Right in the middle. But there were some chairs off to the edges that we tried to angle in toward the stage. And uh, the middle ones, they were easier to set up. It's just it's straight lines and there were some seams in the concrete that we used to set those things up. But the ones that were angled, like, like these two sections or these two sections over here, uh, we had to be a little creative. You know, we had to figure out ways to make sure that the, that the aisles were straight. 
So what we ended up doing was we would stand there in the middle of the big room there and we would look at the centerpiece of those, um, of those two screens that they came together, look kind of like in the center there. And then we would look back at the exit, right? And we'd find one side of the exit or the other. And then we would just line up the outside chairs in a row like that. We'd just line them up straight and then we would build the rows off from that way. Those two points were the way in which we made sure that everything was lined up and that it was aesthetically pleasing and that the aisles were straight. Paul gives us those two points. He gives us these two points by which we as Christians are going to live our lives. He does it in reverse chronological order, but I'm going to flip those just so we can kind of follow along. The first one is Jesus's death, the death of Jesus. If you look at verse 9, verse 9 and 10 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation from God's wrath through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. As we look to the past, that waypoint, that anchor, that day, that event, that time that sets the, uh, the line, that sets the plumb line for us is the death of Jesus. And not just the death of Jesus. Notice he says, who died for us in our place. Not to Jesus's uh, benefit or not to Jesus's satisfaction, but to Jesus's um, sacrifice that he took the place for us. We are rebels to God. And because of that, we deserve death. But Jesus steps in the way and he dies in our place. He sacrifices on our behalf. That's what we celebrated last week. But not just that he died, but that he is alive. That Jesus resurrected, that he beat death with death. And so as humans, as Christians, we look back to that day. We anchor our lives in that reality that there really was a man named Jesus, and he really was God. He died in our place, and he beat death, and he resurrected again. And because he's alive, he's coming back again. That's the second waypoint. If you look at verse 2, remember I said he put them out of chronological order. In verse 2, he says, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. As we look back, we look at the death of Jesus. As we look forward, we look to the day of our Lord. We look to the day of Jesus. The phrase day of our Lord can be found all throughout Scripture. It's in Isaiah, it's in Joel, Matthew. In Matthew, Jesus uses the phrase himself. And there's really deep, theological, rich um, truths and information about that day. You could just do a whole, you do a whole college course just on that phrase, the day of our Lord. We don't have time for that right now, so let me just summarize it this way. There is coming a day. There will be a day when God calls time, when the game is over, and God, Jesus, will return physically to this planet, and he will judge the living and the dead. That those who are sinful, those who are rebellious towards God, who never trust in Jesus, they will be judged. They will experience the full weight of God's wrath. But those who let Jesus take their place, those who put their trust and their faith in Jesus, they will escape that. They will be blessed. They will be his people and he will be their God. That is the day of our Lord. That is the day that is coming in the future. And that day, Paul wants to emphasize, is sudden. It's sudden. It will happen suddenly. That's why he relates it to the idea of, a, 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 of birthing pains a, a pregnant woman would experience. If you've ever been pregnant, um, if you've ever delivered a child, or if you've ever walked with somebody through that situation, then you know that the birthing um, 
events, the pain that goes along with that, is something that you can prepare for, right? You know it's coming. There's a warning. It's not a secret. Everybody will tell you. Um, I remember how often people would tell uh, Jackie how bad this is going to hurt. And so there was that warning. You can plan for it, meaning you get your affairs in order, but you cannot schedule it. I know medically we can schedule it, but just the natural way of, of things, you don't schedule it. It just happens when it happens. It is sudden. You can plan for it. You can prepare for it, but you cannot schedule it. The day of our Lord is coming. It is something that you can plan for. It's something you should prepare for. In fact, that's essentially what he's outlining here, that the people of the day know that it's coming, so they're prepared. They're not worried about it, but you cannot schedule it. In light of these two, in light of these two events and the nature of the day that is coming and the accomplishments of the death that Jesus died and the sacrifice that he did, Paul encourages us to live differently, to align our lives in that reality, to live so differently. So let's look at um, our key verse here, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, you're aware, you know, you can prepare. You are putting your faith and trust in Jesus and we are aligned with the day of our Lord because we belong to the day. Let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and the helmet of hope and salvation. Like I said, he begins with this concept that we identify, we are people of the day. We are geared toward that reality, that event. So therefore, because of that, then let us be self-controlled. It's not to be honest, it's not the way that I would think that Paul would immediately go with this, right? So let, let us be loving. Let us be um, eager. Let us be prepared. No, he says, let us then be self-controlled. At first, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but the more we unpack it, it begins to come alive for us. And, and in reality, we could spend the whole day on this. We could spend the whole month on this concept of self-controlled, right? And how different would our world be if we would all just be a little bit more self-controlled. And not so much because of the way others would treat you, but because of the way that you would treat others, right? If we could be more self-controlled, it would unlock so much good in our lives. Paul compares this self-control in verse 5 and 6 to what? To drunkenness. Not drinking. The Bible does not outlaw drinking. It does specifically prohibit drunkenness. He says, do not... He uses this physical illustration of drunkenness. Those who are in the dark uh, get drunk in the dark, right? He uses this physical illustration to compare what um, the opposite or contrast what being self-controlled would be. So the idea of being drunk, right, is that, and I'm painting with broad strokes here, is that people would lose control of what they say. They lose control of what they do. They lose control of the way they think. They lose control of their actions. They lose control or um, they lose touch with memory. In other words, they know they should do better, even in the moment. They know they should do better, but they don't. Why? Because they are impaired, because they are intoxicated, because they are under the influence of alcohol. And so he uses this physical illustration to then contrast it with a spiritual reality. You need to be self-controlled, not like people are when they are physically intoxicated. So then my question is, let's think a little deeper about it. If physically it's the alcohol that is causing the impairment, what would it be spiritually? 
What would be the spiritual intoxication? Well, I've got two um, possibilities for you, two concepts for you. The first one would be pride, and the second one would be fear. We as humans are so naturally prideful. We are so arrogant. We are the sort of people that just stand there and think we can do this on our own. Like a toddler who can strap in her own, her own seatbelt or, or he can tie his own shoes. We're going to stand there and we're going to do this on our own. And how foolish is it to look at the God of the universe that created us and formed us and fashioned us and say, I don't need your input in my life. We are prideful. We are arrogant. And so we lose control. In our own attempt to prove our own value, in our own um, attempt to try to stand on our own, we do things we know we ought not do. We lose control. We get angry. We get mad. We work out of pride. Another way that we function or we become intoxicated spiritually is through fear. Through fear. We're afraid things are going to go out of our control. We're afraid things are going to turn out poorly. You know, if you've ever raised a child and they were in those preteen teenage years, or if you were ever in the preteen teenage years, you know, there's this whole, like this whole part of our life that is dominated by being afraid of things that older people will tell you, that's not how the world works. That's not reality. And more than likely, the thing that you're afraid of is not going to happen, right? But we operate in that way. We walk around so afraid that we say things we wouldn't normally say, that we do things we wouldn't normally do, that our brains are constantly spinning and working in such a way that we are, um, that we are like we're spiritually intoxicated on fear. Pride and fear, don't operate, don't behave out of fear or pride. Act out of love, love for God, love for people, just people loving people. Garth Brooks talks about uh, the loss of self-control when he sings this song. See if y'all know this one. He says, I have never let anything have this much control over me because I worked too hard to call my life my own. Yes, I made myself a world and it's worked so perfectly. But it's your world now. I can't refuse. I never had so much to lose. I'm shameless. You know that song? You know what I'm talking about? He's talking about losing control to her, to the hers of country music. You know, whoever those hers are, you know. He's lost his control to that. And we don't need to be those kind of people. We don't need to be the kind of people that lose control to these other things. Instead, as Christians, as believers that are anchored to the reality that Jesus died in our place, sacrificed and beat death with death, and the reality, the truth, the, the fact that he is returning as king, sovereign over all things, I hold on to those two anchors, and so I live my life in control of what I think, right? This is really where, to be honest with you, this is where I go to the mat. This is where I have to fight the hardest. My own brain. Jackie will tell you, I'll tell you, I'll agree with her that no one is more critical of me than me, all right? No one is more self-loathing of me than me. And maybe some of you are the same way. That we have to fight the lies that Satan would whisper to us with the truth that Jesus has delivered to us. That I have to tell my own self the reality of what God has said about me and not the lies that I have. We have to control what we think. We also have to control what we say. You have to be in control of what you say. On Law, law and Order, 
there's this trial strategy. And I don't know if this is, if this is consistent with, uh, with real life, but on Law and Order, if you want the jury to hear something that you know is not admissible, you say it anyways, and you wait for the defense to say, objection, and then you say, withdrawn, right? You just say, withdrawn. And what that means is, yeah, don't worry about that. You know, I just, I take it back. But it's a strategy because you know, uh, the, 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 the prosecution knows that you can't take it back. You can't take these things back. And listen, in our own lives, we do the same thing. We are so flippant with what we say. We will so easily tweet or post or whisper or say something that questions the character or the integrity of other people. We will tear down the reputation of other people, all thinking that in a little bit, in a little bit we'll just say, withdrawn. Like it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't hurt. Like it doesn't destroy other people. You do realize that as humans, we are the only animal that can speak the way that we speak, right? We are the only ones that can take these thoughts, these concepts, these abstract theories and these ideas, and I can think them up in my brain, and then I can process them in a certain way, and then spit it out by the use of my mouth and lungs and tongue and teeth in a way that you can then receive it and process it. Language is an amazing gift from God. It is a reality that it was that, that in the beginning God spoke and he, in, he invested that sort of power to you and I. That in the beginning there was the Word and the Word was with us and the Word dwell among us. Your ability to speak is like a superpower. It can build up or you can just as easily destroy, maim, hurt, break. And we are so very flippant with what we say. Well, I just, I thought that's the way it was. You weren't in the room. You don't know. You're just talking. Stop talking, right? You need to be in control of what we think, in control of what we say, and then we need to be in control of what we do. Be real honest with you, I think we're all good at this part. We all know how to look like we're doing good. We all know how to behave, cross those T's, dot those I's, how to smile when you need to smile, and where to walk, those sort of things. We know this because we're in a moralistic society. But here's where I wanna push a little bit harder. Here's where I wanna push a little bit stronger. In Christianity, self-control is not so much and it's not exclusively about limiting or regulating what you're not supposed to do. It is just as equally about us self-controlling our actions to what we are supposed to do. You hear what I'm saying? This is why Jesus says, this is why Jesus says, um, you've heard to love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I'm telling you to love your enemies and pray for your enemies. If anyone tries to sue you for your shirt, give them your jacket as well. If anybody forces you to walk one mile, just go two miles with them. Listen, Christianity, because of the reality of the sacrifice that he made to purchase our souls and the reality that he will come again, that he is the sovereign king, then we live our lives compelled to not just not do the bad, but then to do everything we can to do the good. We don't just not say bad, we say good. We don't just not think bad, we think good. 
We do good. We go above and beyond. We sacrifice. I am telling you, and I promise you this, you will do less of the things you shouldn't do if you will focus more of your time, your energy, and your thoughts towards doing what you should do. Stop trying to regulate the sin nature in you and start trying to walk in the Spirit. Go toward the good, right? Stop being so obsessed with making sure that you're not doing too many bad and start being obsessed with the reality that you can do so many great things with what you think, what you do, and particularly with what you say. So self-control is this fountainhead of this different life. But what Paul does is he, he gives us a little bit more undergirding. He gives us some more thoughts, some more understanding, a deeper rooting in what this actually means. Because we have a really bad habit of taking something like this and saying, because he died and because he's coming back, I need to muster up righteousness. I'm going to be super Christian in what I do. But that's not, in reality, what he's saying. At first look, it looks like Paul is telling us to muster up righteousness, that we can do this on our own. But in reality, he's actually telling us that we need to be under the control of the Spirit, right? Let me show you what I mean. He says, he actually defines this. And this and here is sub subjective to self-control. It's not self-controlled and put on the armor and um, put on the helmet. It is be self-controlled by putting on the armor and putting on the helmet of faith, hope, and love. These three that we see all throughout Paul's writings. We see those all in the Bible. They are the fruits of the Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.18 that um, do not be controlled or under the influence or intoxicated by wine wherein leads to excess, but instead be controlled by the Spirit. Instead be intoxicated, be um, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is compelling us to do here is to actually be so in control of the way we are that we give control over to the Spirit. Faith, hope, and love. Those fruits of the Spirit are things that we don't naturally do, as is self-control, one of the other fruits of the Spirit. We are not naturally trusting and loving and, and, and confident in other people or in God, and sometimes for good reason, right? because we've been hurt, we've been burned. And so we need the Spirit of God to birth within us this strength, like a muscle, to work it out, to, to flesh out these things in our own lives. I promise, the, the more you practice being loving, the more loving you will be. The more gracious with your words you will, it's like a muscle, it's like a strength, it's like a discipline. Muscle memory, that the way you respond when somebody hurts you, if you have practiced, then you will respond graciously. You will respond trusting. And so these are not things that we naturally do. We need the Holy Spirit to work within us. But also, listen to me, this is principally the way that we think about Jesus. Like, I love Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. My faith, my trust is in Jesus. But because we are all second family, because we are all Christians, because we walk with Jesus, then this ought to be the way that we treat one another. This needs to be the way that we default to treating other people. We need to trust other people, love other Christians, hope, be confident in the work of other Christians. Let me say it this way. We are so good at defaulting to assuming the worst in other people. You'll hear one thing out of context. Somebody will tell you a story and you had a bad feeling about something else and you fill the gap with distrust. 
We put everything in the bin and we just assume things. And we need to be better at assuming the good in other people. We need to walk through life thinking that the other people that attend my church, the other people that are in my small group, my family members, my, my Christian friends, that I assume they're trying their best. I assume that even if they did say that about me, they didn't mean it or they were um, intoxicated with fear or pride or alcohol. They were just under the influence of something else. I'm assuming the best in them, right? We don't do that. We assume the worst in other people. And I know that some of you could really push back on that. And you say, you know what? That sounds like a really good way to get burned. That's not, if you're just walking around thinking everybody's doing their best, you're going to get hurt. Not really. Not really. You know why? Because ultimately, I put my faith and my hope and trust in the people around me because ultimately my faith and hope and trust is in Jesus. He bought my soul. He, he defined my worth. And he's coming back and he is sovereign over all things. So there ain't nothing you can do to really burn me. Ultimately, it's all in God's hands. I live my life anchored to these two things, not anchored to what other people think about me, not anchored to what other people will do for me, anchored to what he did for me and what he thinks about me. So it's not the idea. This is part of the weird upside down kingdom we are called to be a part of as Christians. We find joy in persecution. We get when we give. We love our enemies, the ones who hate us. And, and we are completely self-controlled as we give control to the Holy Spirit. As we just walk with him and live with him. Look, there's one final note here, and I'll go through this as quick as possible, but he also mentions these two things, the armor and the helmet. It's just a reminder that this isn't easy, that as much as you can be heavenly minded, you are still in an earthly fight, that there are going to be people coming after you, that life is not tried if it's merely survived. Your attacks come and they'll knock you off course. They will hurt you. But here's something to keep in mind and something that would actually encourage. This is something that I actually worked through in my brain. You have three primary enemies. The first one is Satan and evil. There is a Satan and he woke up this morning trying to mess with God through you. All right, that's a reality. And so we combat that with scripture intake, with prayer, with self-control, with faith, hope, love, gentleness, kindness, meekness, temperance, all these in Christ. We combat that. Satan and evil. The second one, and listen to me on this because this is where we get tripped up, is not the person that's irritating you. It's you. You are the primary reason that things don't go well. You are your worst enemy. We really are. That's why he's saying self-control. In light of Jesus dying and in light of his return, make sure that you're completely in control of everybody else, right? That's the way that we live our lives, but that's not what he says. Because just like grandpa says, you can't control anybody else. You can only control you. We are our own worst enemy. And then third, some people are just flat mean, all right? And I don't know if they're misguided or ignorant. I don't know if they have decided to be mean to you. And believe me, I understand. Sometimes you think, I think that person just hates me personally. And then you tell yourself, that's a silly thought. But I'm telling you, no, they hate you personally, all right? <laughs> and I don't know why. You're a real nice person, all right? Like, it's like Mr. Rogers and then you, right? Just the nicest person. 
but I don't know. They just got some burr in their saddle and they're just mad at you, right? I have some of those people, right? I got lots of those people, right? They just don't like you for whatever reason. And, I, and they are a spiritual enemy, but you combat it all the same way. Prayer, love, and self-control. But I would just say, make sure that you're dealing with the spiritual forces and yourself. It tends to be that that third enemy doesn't really matter that much once you get down to that point. Here's the, re- the reminder and the thing that I want to rem- uh, remind you of. If you're not a Christian, this is what we're calling you to do. Christians align their lives in those two realities. We look back to realize that Jesus has sacrificed and purchased us, and we look forward to realize that he is coming again. That's what Christianity is. And then we live our lives in that line. That's what we are calling you to do. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's what we're asking you to do. It's not a magic spell. It's not um, saying the right words. It's not all of these um, like checking off boxes or climbing some religious ladder. It's that. I will align my life by this reality. I believe he sacrificed for me and beat death with death. And I truly 100% believe that he is coming back again. And man, I hope it's like right now, right? Let's all just check out of this whole thing and let's go, you know? It's good. I believe that I align to that. The people who were baptized earlier, the people that will be baptized later, they have done this. And we are calling you to do this. And most, nearly everybody who has done this did let us know by filling out the card. Like that little bulletin that you have or the card that's in the seat back in front of you. If you want to trust Jesus, you've got more questions about Jesus or you want to follow Jesus in baptism, you don't know what those two things mean. You've got questions. We've got answers. We'll help you. We will walk with you through that. We'll take as long as it takes to talk to you, some minister or myself. So I want to encourage you, fill out that card. Even now, even right now, you fill out that card, put it in the boxes as you leave or see me at the spool. And I'd love to talk to you about that. So here's the application. It's like football, kind of, not really, but you know, I like football. If you're playing football, there's the ball and you have to start the play behind the ball. You have to line up. If you look to the side, you should see a marker, all right? And you have to be behind those two realities. You need to line up with those two things, the ball and the marker. In the same way as Christians, you need to look to the past and see the sacrifice that Jesus made and how great and how wonderful that sacrifice is. And then you need to look to the future knowing that he is returning as king. He is sovereign and he is in complete control. Listen to me. I don't know what you're afraid of, but Jesus is absolutely sovereign. Nothing knocks him off course. And he is coming back according to his plan. You know how I know that? Because he beat death and he said he would and he keeps his promises. Then you live your life. You live your life in, in light of those two realities. Last uh, Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, Some of the staff had plans, you know, family, that sort of thing, and some of them did not. And so we got together and we had lunch, which is fun. We're trying to make like a new tradition. And um, so we were over here in the fellowship hall. We had pulled pork and it was delicious. And uh, we had these two big trays and we ate our our fill. I sure did. And then we had this big tray of pulled pork left over. And so the kings, we took that home. And uh, there's a lot of it, more than we could eat. So Jackie starts calling and texting people, asking them if they want some pulled pork. Because nothing says love like a gallon bag of pulled pork, right? And so a gallon Ziploc bag. So 
um, I was shoving some uh, pulled pork in these Ziploc bags, and then we went around and we delivered it, you know, that sort of thing. A little later, I was out there washing my truck, and Jackie goes to the neighbor's house and delivers some gallon bag of, a gallon Ziploc bag of pulled pork. And she comes back with dessert, all right? Our neighbor had made a mud pie or a mud cake, whatever you call those things, you know. It's got all the layers of chocolate and Oreo and oh, so great, right? And so it's delicious. And so that night we had pulled pork sandwich and some mud pie and, uh, and I loved it. And just, I'm, confession's good for the soul. I had more than a single serving, all right? Right there, sitting there, I had, and I don't regret it, you know, I'd, I would do it again right now. Um, so I had that, and then a little later after the boys went to bed, I look over at Jackie, and I say, you know what? I want some more of that mud pie, you know? And she says, don't do that. And I said, why not? She says, it's gonna hurt your stomach. I said, I'm a man. I can eat whatever I want, right? It's not gonna hurt me, I'm grown. And uh, she's, she normally doesn't really fight me on stuff like this. She just lets me do what I'm going to do. But um, this time, she really kind of put her foot down. She's like, you do not need to eat any more of that. You had plenty. If you eat more of that, it's going to hurt your stomach. And I did not listen to her. And I went in there, and I got some more of that mud pie, and I was fine. She worries about things, you know, worries about things. So a couple hours later, we're going to sleep. Lights are out. She's asleep. And I'm laying there. And I wake her up. Hey, hey, what? You were right. <laughs> My stomach hurts. You know? She did not respond. She did not get up and give me no Pepto, nothing. And I'm so confused. I thought women liked to know when they were right. And so I woke her up to tell her she was right. You know, love, this is what I was doing right there. Listen, a good wife is a good treasure. Proverbs says that. You know, it's a good thing. And you ought to listen to them. They'll tell you when you're doing dumb. You ought to listen to them. But an even greater treasure that we all have as Christians is the Holy Spirit. And you ought to listen to him. He'll tell you when you're about to do dumb. Listen. Give control to the Holy Spirit in light of the reality that Jesus purchased us and he's coming back for us. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.